Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the conservatives who are pushing governors to reopen states for business despite concerns about the coronavirus pandemic. Our guest today is Mark Meckler, who is the president of the Convention of States Project that is right in the middle of these demonstrations. I've known Mark for more than a decade back when he lived in California and was the co-founder and national coordinator of Tea Party Patriots, one of the earliest groups behind the Tea Party movement. Mark says there are a lot of similarities between what happened then and what's going on now. He explains what he learned from his OG Tea Party days and how the movement lost its way and what he's trying to do now. Here's my conversation with Mark Meckler. Mark Meckler, welcome to It's All Political from your home outside Austin, Texas, to my home in Oakland, California. How you doing? It's been a while. Man, it is so good to be back with you. And, uh, you know, I want your listeners to know I talk to a lot of journalists all over the country. You're one of the few guys I trust to just lay it down the middle. You're very honest. And it's just it's really a pleasure to reconnect with you. It is. Uh, you're one of the first person to, uh, people on the on the podcast to open up with a shameless suck up. So I thank you for that. <laughs> Um, (laughs) very nice so i just to catch the the listeners up mark and i first met uh i think it was one of of the very earliest tea party rallies in in the country in sacramento uh you were one of the very you were og tea party um and i remember a line that i quoted you uh from at that point uh because the tea party is like a it was a collection of all kinds of folks there and uh you know you asked the, the crowd there are you you guys tools of the Republican Party? And the response was a resounding boo. They, the the crew then was uh, not uh, very uh, as uh, as conservative as it as it was. What before we start talking about what you're into now? What parallels do you see between the start of the Tea Party and and what's going on now with with what you're organizing organizing with the, through Convention of States? Well, I'll tell you, it's almost identical, and that's why I ended up getting involved, because in the early days of the Tea Party movement, what you saw were all these independent groups all over the country springing up. Nobody had any idea what they were doing, including me. Nobody was telling us what to do. Nobody was giving us money. We were just frustrated and pissed off and felt like the elites, quote unquote, were disconnected from us. So we started self-organizing, and I started seeing this happen all over the country with these reopen the state movements. And that's what caused me to jump in and get involved because I remembered the things that I could have used help with, like, you know, how do you how do you have a presence on the web? How do you make sure you don't get kicked off? And and so I just decided we decided to set up the OpenTheStates.com platform for folks to have a place to organize and communicate with each other. Because in those days, I remember one of the one of the big uh, challenges you had was not only organizing all these different groups and bringing them together, but raising money. There was not a lot of money behind it initially then afterwards you know freedom works and some of the yep. and the Koch brothers uh, the network got behind it Koch brothers are not involved with you at this point correct why why is that no i don't know and somebody mentioned to me a couple of days ago that they had put out a statement saying they're we're staying away from this and they're not involved in it and you know my personal experience with the Koch brothers network is basically non-existent so i couldn't i don't really have any expertise to speak to it i get accused all the time of being funded by the Kochs, but that's just never happened Mm. Um, so tell us about a little bit about what convention of the States is all about. Uh, that is something you started back in 2013 and it's in a nutshell, you kind of want to create a, you want to return more power 
back to the states from the federal government, which was kind of the, the core of the Tea Party movement as well. Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, coming out of the Tea Party movement, one thing I learned, much to my dismay, was you could elect a whole bunch of people, you could gain the majority in Washington, D.C., and still nothing changed. And I think, actually, people on both sides of the aisle have seen this and been pretty frustrated by it. And so as, as I dug into that and got more educated, somebody taught me that, well, we have structural problems, and we've changed the structure of our system of governance in a way that has caused the power to be concentrated in D.C. And until we make some structural fixes, it's going to stay that way. And so the founders gave us a way to do this. In Article 5 of the Constitution, it sets forth how we can amend the Constitution. And the second clause of Article 5 gives we, the people, the power to call a convention, to propose amendments. And I say specifically to restrain federal tyranny. And the reason I say it is at the convention in 1787, George Mason is the one who suggested we put this in here. And he said, are we so naive that we believe that a government that becomes a tyranny will propose amendments to restrain their own tyranny? And unanimously, they decided to give us this power to take power away from D.C. and give it back to the state. So that's what we're organized to do. It takes 34 states to call a convention to propose amendments. So far, 15 states have passed our resolution. Uh, full 49 have introduced it. 30 states have passed it through committee. 23 states in one house or another and 15 states in total. I want to ask you, you just mentioned something I wanted to touch on was, uh, you know, the, the Tea Party kind of lost its way. I mean, look at the before, even before the, the, the two trillion, two point seven trillion dollars out the door to fight coronavirus from the federal government. The country is already running record deficits. What happened to the Tea Party movement? Where did it lose its way? Well, so I think there's there's two steps to maybe three steps to that. The first is, and, and this was a both parties played a role in this. Mm-hmm. It was imperative for the Democrats to vilify the Tea Party because that's where all the political energy was at the time. It was on the right, and it was with the Tea Party. So you know that we got painted as racist, Nazi, you name it. We got called everything you get called out there in the political arena, and the Republicans. It was important to them to try to co-opt the Tea Party because that's where all the energy was. So everybody in the Republican Party basically started calling themselves the Tea Party guy, right? Didn't matter how moderate or squishy or big spending or crony capitalist you were, you needed to try and take on the Tea Party moniker. And so I think that really diluted the brand. Both of those things definitely diluted the brand. And then ultimately, I would say the Tea Party just, it got eaten by the swamp in Washington, D.C., now, where I would say the Tea Party was an incredible success is out at the state level. And you look at the state legislatures swung wildly to the Republican side. Uh, there's a Republican dominance all across. If I travel around the country like I do, I see people that I know personally from the Tea Party movement are now serving in state legislatures all across the country. They're lieutenant governors. They're United States senators. And so it was wildly successful in inserting this kind of stuff into the political system more broadly but it didn't make the change that we hoped it would make. That's for sure. The um, they're talking about uh, now. You're saying uh, your concern is about the when is the appropriate time for states to which you with, which you think should have more power should give the green light to allow people back to work. And I mean, you make saying some strong things about about the, the the power that states are having and and. and in having these issuing these stay at home orders, you're saying the constitution's at stake, liberty's at stake. We're teetering on the balance of liberty and tyranny. Mark, what's how, how are we teetering teetering on the balance of uh, of tyranny here in California, in particular? 
Your, yeah, old, well, your old home state. You, you're, yeah, you're a Grass Valley guy, we should say. My old home state that I love still dearly that I still think is, and I'll get vilified here in Texas for saying, most beautiful state, the most, the greatest natural riches of any state in America, the former golden state, in my opinion. So here's where we're teetering. And specifically in California, it's not been bad in California. And California is the most populous state in the nation. And if you look at the rate of COVID infection in California, it's pretty low mm-hmm. compared. And it, and it was expected to be devastatingly bad and reasonably so. I, you know, I don't think I don't think I want to be really clear. I don't think anybody intentionally misled. I don't think this is a hoax in any way. I think it's a serious thing. I think it was really good. We may have acted, should have even acted earlier, but I think it's good. We acted relatively early. I think it's the shutdown was a good thing initially. And then the question is, what happens after that as we start to get more information? Well, here's what we're realizing now, Joe, and this is this is why I think we're teetering on the edge of tyranny. New York is the worst case scenario. That's the hot spot, 38,000 people per square mile, densely populated, dense public transit system. It's just a place where it's easy for a virus to transit. And so they're having the hardest time. Other places, not so much. New Jersey, not so good. But by the way, it's the part of New Jersey that's closest to New York City, where so many people commute into the city. A couple other hot spots around the country, but not much, to be honest. And if you look at what happened in California, nowhere near as bad as they thought it was going to be. Now, I'm sure some of that is due to the lockdown. And so kudos to the governor and everybody else. I think the governor did a good job cooperating with the federal government. And so I think that's great. But now the primary devastation being imposed on the people of California is economic. And people are out of work. People are losing businesses that they've taken an entire lifetime to build. People can't pay their mortgages. They can't buy their groceries for their kids. And there is a gaping disconnect between what I would describe as the ruling and media elite and the regular people. Because I've yet to talk to a journalist or a media personality or a politician who's worried about their paycheck. And so they're writing about this from only one perspective, which is... Until today. Until today. There you go. (laughs) So they're not writing... They're not writing about it. I hope you're not worried about your page. Just keep, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> and so I, am, so I am concerned about the American people more broadly and the real suffering that's going on out there. And I think it's time that we put that in the balance instead of saying it's all about COVID-19. But don't you, aren't you concerned about like if we send, you know, public health officials have, have lauded California for, for the, the measures that they took and, and some of the other states that, are, that have had that done a decent job at it. But if we all start charging back to work, that that we could ruin that in, in you know days. So what? How should this unfold? And and more important, who should make that decision? So I'm going to flip those questions and say who first, and then how. Okay. The who first is the people should decide. Like who's at risk are the people. Let's remember that the premise for the shutdown was not to stop the spread of the disease. That's not what we were told. There's not a single health official in the United States of America that said we're shutting this down to stop the virus. What they said is we're shutting this down to flatten the curve. And the reason for flattening the curve was to make sure that our healthcare systems could cope with the onslaught of cases. We've definitely done that. In California, you don't have any hospitals that are even close to overwhelmed. In fact, the problem we have now is hospitals are close to bankruptcy, some of them declaring bankruptcy, laying off doctors and nurses because they have no work. And because we won't take regular patients anymore, they're prohibited from taking regular patients. 
And so what we've done is we've flattened the curve. The hospitals are good to go. If there is even an increase in COVID cases from going back to work, the hospitals can handle it. We've, we've got additional ventilators. We've got, a, we've got additional capacity where we felt it was needed. We're good to go. And so what that means to me is we accomplished what the shutdown was intended to accomplish. And now we need to put the power in the hands of the people to make the decisions for themselves. And do you think that the, uh, you've said, you've expressed other concerns about the origins of the, of the virus. You've, you, you refer to it as the Chinese Communist Party pandemic. And you, you've said on your, on your podcast and, and your, some of the things you've, you post online, it's been foisted on the entire world by the uh, Chinese Communist Party, and they have to, quote, pay a price for this. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think the evidence now is unequivocal. And we know that we know when they knew about it. We knew we know we have actually seen memos, internal memos from the Communist Party. We know when Xi Jinping knew about it. And we know that long after he knew about it, knew it was transmitted from human to human, that he and the WHO were telling the world that there was no human to human transmission. We know that, and we've been told this by the leading epidemiologists around the world, that if they had notified us when they knew that they could have reduced the incident of cases worldwide by 95%. In other words, it would not have been a pandemic. And we know that they didn't do that. We know that they destroyed evidence. Uh, we know that they destroyed data. We know that doctors who were complaining about it have disappeared, <laughs> that they're literally gone, that they've been dragged away. And so we know that they hit it. We know that they tried to blame it on the United States military, which is just absurd and ridiculous. And so what we know is when it comes to world health, they're certainly not a trustworthy partner. They had undue influence on the WHO, and they're to blame for the deaths here in the United States. And when I say that there needs to be a cost for that is the world needs to reevaluate its trading and other relationships with the Chinese Communist Party. It's not, it's not all just getting cheaper goods and everything's going to be okay. There is a real price to pay here. And the president disagrees with you on this. He does not uh, feel that way. He uh, has been somewhat protective of, uh, of his uh, relationship with the president of China, the leader of China. Um, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it's very difficult to read the president in regard to stuff like this because he has a habit of saying that the worst, most thuggish dictators in the world are his buddies and he has a great relationship with them. And the next week he's talking about how he's going to slap them around or, you know, in case of North Korea, calling him Rocket Man. And so I don't know exactly what his strategy or game is with the Chinese. But to be fair, he was warning us about the dangers of communist China pretty much long before any of the other major politicians. And so I think he's generally been on the right track with China. If it were up to me, I, I would say he should be more direct and harsher with China right now. And what are your, um, the, 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 you, you've said that there's thousands of people who have been, uh, um, who are getting involved with this. Tens of thousands of people are getting involved with the open various state movements and such. Um, how, is there any idea of what, what kind of estimate do you have? How many people nationwide do you think are, are involved in this? You know, I think it's, it's hard to get an exact number because they're not all located in one place because this is so diversified. But I'll throw out some numbers that I do know. The, the Michigan group that organized the Lansing protest, last time I looked, which is a few days ago, had over 350,000 on their Facebook page. The California group, I, I interviewed those folks two days ago, just regular folks. 
they're upwards. I, last I looked, they were oh, well over 90,000 on their Facebook page. And that doesn't count all the subgroups in California, San Bernardino and Los Angeles and wherever else, San Diego. If you look at uh, North Carolina, last I looked, they were over 55,000. Wisconsin was over 100,000. And those are just the people logging into the main or liking the main Facebook page in each state. So I would say at this point, we're up into the probably low millions. Wow. And these are people just basing it on, you're basing on the number of people who've responded or clicked onto a Facebook page. But you know, Yeah, I mean, that's really all I can do right now. I think we'll have better numbers over the next couple of weeks as we start to see these protests grow and, and these organizations get more sophisticated in how they're communicating with people. I'll have more of my conversation with Mark Meckler after a short break. What are your concerns about this, uh, about the, the variety of people coming in? Because as, as you know, from, from uh, back in the early days of the Tea Party movement, it became a catch-all for all kinds of people with uh, of, uh, concerns and complaints about all kinds of uh, political figures, the federal government, state government, et cetera. There was a, a, a rally today in Wisconsin at the state capitol in Madison. People were apparently bringing long guns there, uh, responded that. What are your concerns about that? And what are you advising uh, local organizations to do about it? Yeah, look, I'm always concerned about stuff like this. Anytime you get a mass movement at the fringes, they're going to be crazy people. Mm-hmm. Or they're going to be people who are just creating bad imagery, bad narrative. And so I do worry about that. I definitely worried about it with the Tea Party movement. I was very protective of the movement in that way. And so I'll just give you an example. In the Tea Party movement, there was a time early on in the movement when people said, you know, somebody said, I don't remember who, we should all open carry weapons at these rallies. (laughs) And luckily, most people just said, hey, that's a really stupid idea. We should not do that, whether you have the legal right to or not. You know, my parents taught me when I was growing up, Joe, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Mm. And so that would be my advice to people going to these rallies don't make yourself look wild and crazy. And frankly, if you're leading one of these rallies, you should try to marginalize the people who act wild and crazy. Because if you look at, for example, the Lansing protest, uh, I spent a lot of time watching that. It was live fed online. I I watched it for hours, literally. 99% of the people stayed in their cars. I think there were over 10,000 cars there was the estimate two to four people in every car and they stayed in their cars. They had signs, they honked. That's how that was a gridlock protest. There were a couple hundred people on the steps of the state Capitol. I saw some imagery of a couple of guys dressed in black, ARs slung over their shoulders, gun or ammo belts across their chest. That's just stupid. I mean, I assume they have the legal right to do it or the police would have stopped them. I think that's crazy. And I think it's bad for any movement when you let fringe people like that become the image of the movement. Who's who's funding this at this point? Uh, I know that again, going back to the early days of the Tea Party, you're like I, you know, you're trying to figure out not only how to organize people but where to get money from. Eventually, it came. Where where's the money coming from from here? Well, I would say, as far as I know, right now there is zero money, and um, and here's why I say that. I mean, I'm talking. What I'm doing right now, Joe, is reaching out, and trying to interview the organizers of as many of these groups as I possibly can. We're offering them a platform. We're not offering them any money. We're not paying for permits. We're not providing them anything other than here's a website where you can list your events and talk to other people. And so I'm not aware of anybody that has any money. Everybody I've talked to, I ask them that question. Uh, I say, you know, look, there was an article about us, my organization, and me in the New York Times and WAPO this week. And they say that, you know, we're the shadowy group behind it, uh, behind this conservative funding machine. 
and they laugh and they're like, Hey, if there's anybody with money, we'd like to know about it because what we're doing, we're doing out of our own pockets. I talked to a guy from uh, Sacramento, by the way, near your hometown. And he's one of the main California organizers. He said he's working 15 to 18 hours a day, just manning the Facebook page and trying to help control that. There's no money in this so far that I can tell. I think, you know, like you said, eventually the big organizations will start to play AFP, which is part of the Coke network. They've opted out. It sounds like Freedom Works has. I think they'll come in eventually. My old organization, Tea Party Patriots, will will probably come in and play at some point. Maybe they'll put some money into it. But right now, it's just a ragtag group of grassroots activists. And this is uh, and this is good news. But this is good news for your organization. This you know you're bringing all these groups here. They're as you say, you're you're a clearinghouse for it, and that helps your cause as well. Well, it might, but uh, you know, it's also in a way, it's a distraction for us in the sense that. Convention of States is our main project. But if you look at what I do and what I'm about personally, fundamentally, I'm about self-governance. And this is a self-governance movement. What we're trying to support people doing, they say, hey, we'd like to decide for ourselves. That's an act of self-governance. So for me, it goes right to the heart of my personal life's mission. This is what I plan on spending the rest of my life doing is helping self-governing citizen activists step up and be active. I want to ask you about the president, too, because, you know, you are very sympathetic to him, but you've criticized him in the past for some of the crony capitalism that he's done and his administration has done, I should say, as well. Uh, how do you think he's handled this? We're, the, the day after or the day we're recording this, the president yesterday talked about, you know, ingesting disinfectant. And there's been all the, the, to the point where the uh, head of Lysol had to come out and say, please don't, uh, you know, use Lysol internally. <laughs> What yeah, is, no, what are your, how do you think the president has handled this? And and uh, and he's and he's been sympathetic to the protests, but in general, how do you think he's handled the coronavirus? So, I would say the way I try to judge the president because he's such a unique figure is I try to separate the noise from the action. And so, I would say in regard to his narrative and how he speaks about things, man, probably a C plus, maybe a B on a good day. Like, I just don't think he's he's a great narrator in a crisis or otherwise. He's just I think he, there's a lot of usefulness in the way he antagonizes people from a political perspective, but especially at a time when we need calm. I think he would do well to let the nation hear more from Fauci and Bricks and people like that. How he's actually handled the crisis extraordinarily well, surprisingly well, from my perspective. He assembled a very good team. He acted Earlier than most people said he should, I think it's important we remember historically, he locked down the border with China, prevented flights from China at a time when virtually the entire mainstream leftist media called him racist and xenophobic for doing so. Now it turns out that was the right decision. Maybe should have done it a little earlier. So I think he was a little bit ahead of the curve. His narrative was definitely behind the curve. You know, he started early. It's not a problem. But to be fair, that's the information we now know for sure. That's the information he was getting from uh, Health and Human Services and the CDC. Well, other other states locked down quicker. California certainly acted quicker than the than the federal government did. But do you think his? Um, so you'd give him a B plus on or C C plus on rhetoric, and but uh, a stronger grade on on his actions. Um, does he? Um, what has he done for? For this, do you think that this is this uh, what you're organizing? This open up the country thing. Do you think he's taken the right approach in saying this is a state's issue? Uh, let let this up to the government. 
um, he, you know, he went back and forth. It, initially, he said, right. "Well, I have supreme power." Then the next day, he, he rolled back on that and said, "No." The, In the classic Trump fashion, I might add. So you, 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 you defend that when he's when he rolled back on that. Well, look, right. I think my personal opinion, and and I've talked to some folks inside the White House. One of the things that you can know for sure if you work inside the White House is no matter what Trump says or does, Democrats are going to hammer back and they're going to take a 180 degree opposite position. I know that he wanted the states to start opening up and he had been talking about opening the country. I mean, he was talking about opening the country as early as April. I know that he is a guy that believes in and loves a big, robust American economy. That's his main political achievement. And so I know he wants the states open. I think that's pretty obvious. And so I think when he said to the governors, you don't have the power to do this, only I do, I think essentially it was a taunt. And he knew that all these Democratic governors were going to say, oh, no, you don't. We do. And the next day he's like, oh, okay, you do. That's fine. So Go it, for it. It was a troll. It was, it was doing it on purpose. Well, I would have to say out of every politician I've ever seen in my entire life, he is the most masterful troller. So, yeah, I think it was a troll. <laughs> the troller in chief. Um, what, so tell us, uh, give us a little uh, look ahead. How, what's going to be happening the next couple of weeks with uh, this movement to open up the states? And tell us, uh, specifically in California, what, what, should, what should we be looking for here? And, uh, and tell us what's going to be going happening. I think we're going to see more and more protests uh, at the state capitals, but all over in the cities, uh, various cities at city halls as well. I think we're going to see that movement continue to grow. Uh, I've been talking to activists for the last several days, pretty much all day long and interviewing them. I know the group leading in California, the Reopen California. I know a guy that's setting them up at all 50 states right now for May 1st. I'm expecting May 1st is going to be pretty big all over the country because there are events planned all over the country on May 1st, literally in every state right now. Uh, some of them will be big, some will be small, but they're just going to continue to grow. The momentum is going to be there. And the momentum is, is not there. I want to be clear. It's not about politics. When I talk to these California organizers, it's pretty funny because one of the guys is a big Trump guy, one of the main organizers. And he even says, look, I separate my Trump stuff from this. I have a Trump group online, but I don't do that here. The other organizer is a woman out of San Diego, and she's pretty much apolitical. She's, she's not conservative. She's not liberal. She doesn't really do politics. She had one of her friends come over to her house before she got started with this, said she lost everything. Her business was destroyed, and she was thinking of committing suicide. And oh. she just said, look, we, we've got to do something. There are real human consequences here, and that's why she stepped up. They have 15 moderators in this group, Joe, and they say they rarely agree on anything political. They're all in this just to open the state back up. They have people from the left, the right, the center, you name it, you know, the, the anti-vaxxers, the Second Amendment folks, uh, people on the left who are anarchists. They've got them all, and they all just want the state open. And what, if you had to give advice, are you, are you, or I guess, are you concerned about, you know, you and I have been, both been in a lot of protests, um, people standing side by side you know, it's definitely, you're closer than six feet in any kind of mass demonstration. How do you, aren't you concerned that this could just be another little Petri dish of, uh, of or many Petri dishes around the country of, uh, of activism and disease spreading? Yeah, I'm, look, I'm on a personal level. I'm not that worried about that. I'm a young, healthy, I say young, I'm 58. So, you know, it's relative. Yeah, that, <laughs> that makes, that makes me younger. So that's good. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I say, you know, I'm a young, healthy guy. I'm the, my odds of getting sick. If, even if I get the disease are very low, I'm not worried about that. I trust people to make their own decisions. That being said, as an organization, we recommend people follow the CDC guidelines. I recommend be safe. You wear a mask, stand six feet apart from people. I think that's the better way to do things. We can't tell anybody what to do. I've never pretended I could tell grassroots activists what to do, but that's if they had any desire to listen to an old guy like me, that's what I would suggest. You, these are uh, lessons learned in the wars of the, uh, the Tea Party wars of uh, more than a decade ago. You know, the images matter, you know, the, the narrative matters. The best protest I've seen anywhere in the world took place in Rabin Square in Tel Aviv, Israel, about five nights ago. And if you look at the imagery from it, it's absolutely incredible. Leave it to the Israelis. 2,000 people showed up. They're on much stricter lockdown than anybody in the United States. 2,000 Israelis defied that. They came out and they all stood six feet apart. It's just a beautiful nighttime image. I recommend checking it out if you want to see what I think the perfect open up the state's movement looks like. All right. Mark Meckler, thanks so much for being on It's All Political. Hey, one last thing, which is if folks are interested and they want to follow it, go to openthestates.com. And and even if you're just curious and want to follow it, even if you're critical and you want to follow it, that's the place, openthestates.com. There you go. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are healthy and safe. I'd like to thank Mark Meckler for joining us today. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you're OGT party or just like wearing tri-corner hats for fun, it's all political. It's All Political is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive editor is Audrey Cooper. Our theme music, our wonderful theme music that I love, it gets me jazzed up, is Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. Support It's All Political and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership. It's very easy. You just go to sfchronicle.com slash pod.